Okay, good morning. It's great to be back together to resume our Parsha class. I hope everyone was studying the Parsha in the interim on your own. You know you're allowed to do that as well. No rule against that. So we resume Parsha Shlach, a fantastic Parsha, not a fantastic story of the Jewish people, nor a fantastic result, but a fascinating story and a fascinating narrative. So much to learn from, and I want to delve into a section today with you that is often neglected or not necessarily studied in depth. It's not usually the uh, highlight of, uh, of the parsha, but I think there's a tremendous amount to extract, a lot to learn from it. So as usual, we'll do our overview of the parsha, and then we'll delve into the specific uh, psukim together. So parsha shlach begins with the command to uh, send the Jewish people, uh, allocate or designate spies to go investigate the land. And uh, the late Norman Mordkovsky, Allah Shalom former member of our shul, used to be very upset when rabbis say they were sent to spy out the land. He would say, that's not English. There's no such thing as spying out. They're sent to investigate the land. That's the proper English. I think he told me that 15 years ago and it still stuck with me. So the spies are sent to investigate the land, to do an analysis and to come back. Who exactly sends the spies? Whose idea was this wonderful idea? In ours, Parsha, it sounds one way. Later in Sefer Dvarim, when Moshe in his monologue recalls the story, he portrays it differently. It's not our subject for today, but it is a fascinating question. Whose idea, what was the genesis of this idea of sending the spies? The spies were not ordinary men. They were shlachlacha anashim. Rashi says they were anashim chashuvim. These were, these were the leaders of the people. We read the story and we tend to think, these were the rejects, these were the negative people, these were the complainers, these were the... There was never a shot it would work out. But it's not the truth. These were the heads of the tribes. It's as if God tapped Rav Moshe and Rav Yaakov and the Rav and the Rebbe and Rav Hutner and every gadol of the 20th century and said, 12 of you, I need you to go. I have a mission for you. Which makes the, their report even more perplexing. So he taps these these Anashim Chashuvim to go. But first, on their way, the names change. The Yud is added to Hoshea's Nud. The Yud from Sarai, who became Sarah, that Yud was saved all these years, added to Hoshea's name. Yud stands for God. God's name was added to Yoshua, and he was ready. And there was one other stop that had to happen, and that was they all came up from the south except for. Kalev. Why did Kalev come from another direction? Where did he stop for a detour? Hebron. Why did he go to Hebron? He went to go pray. Where did he pray? Marasamachpela. Why did he stop? All of a sudden it's quiet. <laughs> Why did he stop? It wasn't to get uh, traveler's checks, uh, passport renewal, or. Uh... Why, did he ch- Why did he stop? Chazal tell us he stopped because same way Yehoshua's name was changed to Yehoshua to fortify him to do the right thing on this mission. So Revolba asks, if Kalev knew that something was going to go wrong, enough that he made a detour to stop to Davin, why'd he go? Why not pull out of the mission? Why not object or protest? If he had an instinct that something was off, something was going to go wrong, so just pull out. Be a whistleblower. Blow the cover off this thing and tell everybody, bad idea. We're going to leave us 40 years in the midbar. There's this thing, Tisha B'Av. They're going to hate us forever. They have to fast for 24 hours. Forget it. It's off. The mission's off. Why did he go anyway if he knew enough to have to stop in Hebron? That's Revolba's question. 
Not for now. I like to ask you a lot of questions so you have something to think about over, over Shabbos. So they go, they're on their way. Their mission was, Go see. What is the status of the people that live there? Are they strong? Are they weak? Are they many? Are they few? What's the status? In our parsha, it's depicted that the purpose of the mission is to identify the military installations where they are, topography of the land. But if you look in Sefer Dvarim, again, when Moshe is recounting the story, he says something different. He says their mission is not to go and investigate the strength of the army, but it's to bring back Hashivenu davar. Bring back a davar. What's a davar? A davar is a thing. So he sent them, why? To bring back a davar. What's a thing? Usually, you know, someone asks you to bring something back from Israel. Marzipan Ruglach, a new talis, a new kippah, a new uh, Magin David, a shawarma. What's a davar? So Rashi says that Moshe sent them to see what? Eze lashon heim medabrim. What language are they speaking? What language are they speaking? Who cares what language they're speaking? That's what matters. What matters is the way it's depicted in our parsha. Are they strong? Are they weak? Are they many? Are they few? Where are they? Eli Kohn, the great spy, whose body still has not been returned to our people, whose tremendous sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, was so greatly responsible for, for our people's victory. So you think he went in Syria and he was checking what language are they speaking? He was sending them exactly where the military was encamped. Brilliantly and at such personal risk. So what do you mean? So the Maharal there in Sefer Dvarim, Maharal has a magnificent insight. He says, you know why the mission was to go see what language they're speaking? It's not the language. What language is it? Aramaic, Hebrew, English, Spanish, French. It was go eavesdrop to what they're talking about. If you want to know the strength of a people, if you want to know everything about someone, or if you want to know everything about a people, listen to what they talk about. Is it significant or insignificant, sophisticated or unsophisticated? Are they gossiping? I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt who once said that small people talk about people, and average people talk about things, and great people talk about ideas. So what were they talking about? Are they talking about people? Are they talking about things? Are they talking about ideas? You know everything about how strong they are by if you listen to what exactly, what exactly they're talking about. Anyway, so that's the mission. And uh, and so on and so forth. What happens? They come back and they report. And what is their report? So if you really read it at first glance, again, we are so ingrained that the spies, the Maraglim, are villains. They're villains of the Torah. It's their fault we have Tisha B'Av. It's their fault they wandered 40 years. Some of the challenges of Israel continue because of that. They're villains. But if you read their report, on page 800 now in the Art Scroll Stone, Chomesh on the bottom, We got there. We landed. We waited on line customs. It's an incredible land. It's flowing with milk and honey. This is its fruit. Look at the size of its fruit. Unbelievable! We had breakfast at the Waldorf. You should see how fresh the vegetables are. You should see the fruit. They're perfect. They're magnificent. The rogalach, the guy making the omelets. It's unbelievable what's going on here. Ephes. However, the people that live there are powerful. The cities are strong and great. 
And we saw the offspring of the giant. Amalek Yoshev Bar Tanegev. Amalek's there. Chitia Yivusi Amor Yoshev Bar, and so on. And that's the report. Tell me, where did they go wrong? What did they say that was so terrible? They did what was asked of them. They came back and they reported on what they saw. Great breakfast, land flowing with milk and honey. Look at the size of this fruit. And you asked us to check out, are they many, are they few, are they strong, are they weak? And here's the report. They're fortified, they're great. There's a giant, Amalek's there, these nations are there, Canaanim live there. And all of a sudden, Kalev tries to intercede. He shouted down. There's hysteria, the people are crying. What, what, what did they do? Why are they villains? What did they say that was so wrong? Anyone see anything in their statement that was so wrong? So the Ramban says one word, Ephes. That word Ephes captured everything. Ephes means but, however. They began by saying the land is beautiful. Eretz, Zavaz, Chalavi. Zavaz, Chalavi, Dvashi, it's beautiful. Ephes, however, as magnificent, as attractive as it looks, as promising as it is, we've got a problem. Ephes, however, got a problem. There's giants and there's strong nations. So the Ramban says, you have this whole report spanning numerous psukim. Their mistake was in the one word, however. It put a negative spin. It couched it in an uphill battle. However. Yeah, there's so much promise. But, but, odds are against us. There's giants there. It's very, it's very unlikely. The Ramban says that word, Ephes, is everything. Kalev tries to intercede by first aligning himself with them as if he's on their side, impugning Moshe, and then they're on to him, and there's national hysteria, as we know. We're going to see this Pesukim in a moment. The mistake of the spies, if you go back to the opening Rashi, go to page 798. The opening Rashi. Why do we have a juxtaposition of the end of last week's parsha? Miriam's Lashon Hara on her brother Moshe, and the beginning of our parsha, Shlach, the report of the Meraglim. Torah is not random. When we have a juxtaposition between the sections, when there's a continuity between the sections, there's a reason, there's something to learn. Says Rashi, what's the connection between the end of last week's parsha? Miriam's Lashon Hara, the beginning of our parsha, Meraglim. They didn't learn from the consequence to Miriam. Miriam spoke negatively. She gossiped about her brother. She was held accountable. They should have learned the impact of, of gossip. And they didn't. They came back and they spoke negatively. Now in the Meraglim's defense, in the Meraglim's defense, should they really have learned from Miriam's episode to hear? Miriam spoke about a person. A person who has feelings. A person who has rights. A personality. A person who has a standing the greatest standing. They spoke about a land. They spoke about the possibility of conquering the land. Is that really fair to hold them accountable? They should have learned from the consequence to Miriam when, yes, on the one hand, in both cases, Lashon Hara. But on the other hand, it's totally different type of Lashon Hara. How could you compare the two and how could you hold them accountable to learn? So in the brand new Rabbi Salavitcher Chumash on Bamidbar, that coincidentally just came out in time, we say for Bamidbar, so Rabbi Soloveitchik writes the following. Rashi quotes the Medrash Tanchuma. Why is the section with the spies juxtaposed here? She was punished over matters of slander and they didn't learn from her lesson. Miriam had overlooked the segula element in Moshe 
and they overlooked the segula element in the land. Miriam ignored the chosenness of her brother, his numinous character and charisma. The spies likewise could not grasp the secret of his school of land and its unique metaphysical relationship to the people. There was a common denominator in the two episodes. In her protest against Moshe and in the report submitted to Moshe, the element of school was absent from both. Rabbi Bezdin writes in Reflections of the Rav, not having to do with our Parsha, but the Rav defines what's a school. Am segula. A skula, I'm not going to go on my usual skula rant, don't worry. But a skula is not the red bendel, that's darchei ha'mori, that's idolatry. A skula is not hebejibi, you put the key, you do the thing, you don't. A skula is not shortcuts. When it says we are an am segula, a nation of skula, that's not what it means. Segula, whenever we see that word used, and we see it in relation to the Jewish people, we see it in relation to the land of Israel, skula means singular, unique, special. Jewish people are a singular, unique people. True, all are B'Tselem Elohim, all are created in the image of God, but we alone are B'ni B'chori Yisrael. Banim Atem Lamakum. We are the children of the Almighty. We are in fact His eldest child. We are His B'chor. We are among humanity. We are unique. We are singular. We are an Am Segula. The land of Israel is unique among all the places on earth. Yes, it's made up of soil and mountains and valleys and it looks similar to other countries, to other lands, but it is a, a country which is a skula. It is unique. It is special. It is the, the land, the soil itself has possibility, has a richness, a spiritual richness. It's the only place on earth where there are mitzvos hatuluyos ba'aretz. You can fulfill a mitzvah by getting your hands dirty with the soil itself. The only place on earth. It is unique. It is singular. It is a segula land. So says the Rav, the mistake of the spies was not the cute, like we're taught as kids. Oh, she spoke Lashonara, they spoke Lashonara, you can't talk Lashonara about Israel. That happens to be true. We should not speak negatively, one should not speak Lashonara about Israel. But says the Rav, that's not the connection. The juxtaposition is, what they should have learned from Miriam is, Miriam failed to recognize the uniqueness, the singularity of her brother. One of the 13 principles of our faith, one of the animamins, is that Moshe is the greatest prophet to ever live. No one came before him, no one will come after him. He is our greatest teacher and master. He is singular, he is unique in the annals of the Jewish people, in our history, in our scholarship, in every way. He is singular. And she failed to see his singularity, his uniqueness, and that's why she challenged, why has he separated himself from the people, from his family? And similarly, the Miraglim come back and they fail to see the singularity, the uniqueness of Israel. And they say, you know what? It's an uphill battle. There's giants there. It's tough. Midbar's not so bad. We've got the cloud and the fire. We've got the man, the be'er, and the slav. Not too bad. And if the Midbar doesn't work out, maybe we should take Uganda. Right? The great, the third Zionist Congress. When Herzl proposed Uganda instead of Israel. And, anyone know who voted in favor of the Uganda plan at the time? It's fascinating. The Mizrahi voted in favor of the Uganda plan because the Mizrahi were so afraid, looking at some things haven't changed, they were looking over their right shoulder 
at the Haredi world who was critical of their aligning themselves with Zionism and to try to prove that no, we're not trying to take back Israel before Hashem time of redemption. We're just looking for a place of refuge for the Jewish people. The Mizrahi, in order to prove their religious credentials, said Uganda will do as a place of refuge. The Mizrahi said we're in, they voted in favor, and it was the secular Zionists who looked at Herzl and said, are you out of your mind? Uganda? That's not what we waited all this time for and prayed for and so on. It was the secular Zionists who turned it down. It actually, the Uganda plan passed by a small margin, but it was such a small margin, Herzl and the Congress didn't feel comfortable going forward with it. So the spies here, so what was the failure of, of a proposal of a Uganda plan? I want to give a whole sheer about why not Uganda. Why can't we set up shop anywhere else, somewhere else in the world? Right? When I gave that cheer, I began with an article I found online where somebody proposed that Israel should have been set up in Germany. The, the way that Germans can uh, get uh, German, the retribution for what they did for the Holocaust is they should turn Germany over to the Jewish people to set up their homeland there. And get out of Israel, let the poor Palestinians have it. That was this brilliant suggestion. Because as if we don't have a further back claim to the land. I don't want to get into this, but the point I'm making is that those who proposed or supported the Uganda land or this ridiculous proposal about Germany fails to see the singularity, the uniqueness of the land. You can't trade Israel. It's not, you can't just take somewhere else. It doesn't work that way. You know? That's like, oh, I deny you your mother, but this other old woman over here, she'll do. She's good. You know, your kids. You can't have access to your kids, but I found this baby in, here, take this one. There are certain singular, unique relationships that can't be transferred, that can't be replaced. One of them are the Jewish people and Hashem, another is the land, and another is Moshe. And says the Rav, that's what they failed to learn. Just as Moshe is singular and unique, he is a skula in the Animamans, so too the land is unique, and that was their, that was their failure. They come back, they report so negatively, this disaster, hysteria ensues, they cry the whole night. We'll come back and we'll see this in, in a moment. God wants to destroy them. Moshe Davins for them. This is the cycle that we've now entered. The people make a mistake. Moshe Davins for them. God says, fine, I'll give them one more chance. Until they make the next mistake. But they're punished. And what is their punishment? They have to wander in the desert for 40 years. And why do they wander in the desert for 40 years? Why? Not a trick question. Because, because the mission was 40 days long. So... A year for a day, a year for a day, 40 years in the desert, corresponding to every day of their mission that they were in Israel. Asks Rav Asher Weiss, the Minchas Asher Shlita. I don't understand. The mistake was not the 40-day mission. The mistake was one day. They came back and the night they gave the report where they said, Ephes, however, I don't know, I don't think it's going to be up. The mistake was one day, not 40 days long. So why is it a punishment of 40 years? The whole punishment should have been one year corresponding to the one day in which they gave the bad report. I've said this to our Torah before because I love it. Should I give you the answer to this one or let you leave you with this oh, question too? I'll give you the answer he gives. I think it's a brilliant answer. Says Rav Asher Weiss, the mistake wasn't one day. The mistake was 40 days because they went with a negative attitude. Sometimes you go into a situation, you've already made up your mind and it becomes a self-fulfilled prophecy. You're just confirming what you've already decided before it even began. They went to Israel with a negative attitude and they looked for the problem and the obstacle. They looked for the excuse and the reason to come back and to say, we can't do it. Ephes. 
So all 40 days on their mission was not 40 days of neutrality, 40 days, 40 days of power of 40 days of Switzerland, and we'll see what it'll be. They were negative. They had made up their mind. And when they came back, it was one day of reporting what they had already concluded before they ever left. And that's why it was a year for a day, a year for a day. They're punished for all 40, says Rav Asher Weiss. And how often do we do that? We go into a situation where we're supposed to be neutral. We're making a decision about something. Could be a shidduch, could be a job, could be a, a decision we have to make. And we've already made up our mind. We've reached our conclusion before we ever begin our investigation. So by the end, we're just confirming what we already knew from the beginning. And, and that's what the spies, that's what the Maraglim says Rav Asher Weiss are held accountable for, and they're punished for 40 years. Okay, now they try to rush, it's too late, they can't go, Hashem says, no, good. Parsha then gets into a couple of what seem to be random mitzvos, which we don't have time for, the nisuch hayaya, nisuch hamayim, the libations on the altar, then we have the mitzvah of chala, a beautiful mitzvah of chala that applies even in chutz arts. It's the one mitzvah. Chala is like the truma of bread. It was given to the Kohanim. We today don't give it. Why don't we give it to the Kohanim? Truma in Israel or Chala in America? I'm sure many here make Chala. Maybe they do it with 39 other women and on a certain day in the Skula, of which there is no source anywhere in the entire Torah. Poskim, Rav Aviner and others have written there is no source. Rav, uh, Rav Shmuel Arbach, not Rav Shmuel Arbach, um, the, the Rav of Tzvat, I forgot his name, and Rav Aviner, they've all written that there's no source in the Torah of making challah, school of 40 women only on a Thursday. But if someone's doing a mitzvah, it's a beautiful thing. If it, if it encourages women to make challah, separate the challah, make a bracha, do a mitzvah, it's geschmack, it's beautiful, wonderful. You just shouldn't think the school of part of it. Anyway, the mitzvah of challah, why don't we give kohanim today? I don't want to insult any, we have any kohanim here? We don't know who they are. Oh, so the, the Nusa Kalim and Shulchan Ach write because they're not miyuchasim. We don't know with full confidence that the Kohanim can trace their lineage back. So it's enough to bestow them the first honor that they get the first aliyah. It's enough to allow them to get up there into Duchen, even to make a bracha on Duchening. But for Truma, they're not miyuchasim. We don't know for sure that they are, that they are uh, can trace their lineage. So we burn, we destroy the Chala instead. Oh, good question. When it comes to Pinyan right. So in some areas we rely. By the way, that's why when it comes to Pinyan Aben, some are strict to only use Kohanim with certain last names who can trade. Rappaport. Rappaport is a very established uh, Kohan. Rav Shabsai Kohan Rappaport, the Shach. There are other last names that people with Pinyan Aben are makbit to find a Kohen with that last name because those prominent last names, one of those last names, by the way, is not Kohen. <laughs> I know several Cohen's, Hillel and Donny Cohen in our community, my buddy Ezra Cohen, Rabbi Donny Cohen, they're, they're not Cohenim. Steve Cohen, right? I think more Cohen's I know are not Cohenim than are Cohenim. Cats, cats is an established name. Rappaport is a very established Cohen name, and so on. The beautiful mitzvah of what? That, true, although if but there are certain. Maybe it would be permissible in certain circumstances. Maybe they should have to safeguard it at least until it rots and then dispose of it. But we get rid of it. How you get rid of it? Truma, uh, chala, when you take it, you burn it in the oven, double wrap it, put it in the garbage. It's actually a big discussion in halacha with different practices and minhagim. Torah then gets into the prohibitions of idol worship. And then we get into the story of the Mikoshesh Eitzim. 
Somebody was gathering wood on Shabbos. What exactly was his malacha? What did he do wrong in the Mekoshesh Eitzim? Which malacha was he violating? That's a big discussion. And does anyone know who he was, the Mekoshesh Eitzim? Tzlavchad. says, our father died in the desert. Why did he die? It was Tzlavchad. Tzlavchad is such a righteous man. Why would he be violating Shabbos? So... There's a whole discussion here that, in fact, it was an act of righteousness because Slavchad, he wanted to demonstrate the death penalty for the violation of Shabbos to ingrain within the people just how significant and sacred Shabbos is. And so it leads to the whole discussion of can a person, um, can you sin in order for the purpose of a mitzvah? Is there such a notion as a uh, Avera Lashma? Can you do an Avera Lishma? We gave a shir on this uh, a couple of years ago. It's available on Y.E. Torah. But Rabbi Shlomo Karabach has on our parasha something very interesting. He says the Mekoshesh was not a simple Yid. Mekoshesh was not, not somebody who was a Machal Shabbos Bifar Hesiyah. The Mekoshesh said the Jews are about to go into the desert for 40 years. And people are going to say the whole Torah is invalid. You know, we were supposed to go into Israel and the whole plan has changed and the Torah therefore doesn't apply and Shabbos is not as significant as it was supposed to be. So therefore he was Machal al-Shabbos intentionally so he would be stoned to death publicly to demonstrate that the Torah still applies because Baruch Hu still has expectations of us even if it's not in Israel. In other words, people might say, all of this only applied in Israel. So we're still in the desert now, we've got 40 years here? We'll keep Shabbos when we get to Israel. We don't have an institution of Shabbos here in, in the Midbar. And again, that leads to that entire discussion. So Rabbi Shlomo quotes from the Zohar, who says that the Mekoshesh was one of the greatest students of Moshe Rabbeinu. And again, Chazal tell us, the Mekoshesh may have been none other than Tzlavchan. So he says, Rabbi Shlomo, when Avram Avinu went up to the Akedah, it says, Va'yivaka He split the wood. And the Zohar says that Avram Avinu, by splitting the wood, was paving the way for the Mekoshesh Eitzim. That Avram was splitting the wood because Avram was going on Mesiris Nefesh with Yitzchak and the Mekoshesh Eitzim was Moser Nefesh for the Jewish people. Avram passed his test. He was willing to give up his son Yitzchak and the Mekoshesh Eitzim was willing to give up his own life to demonstrate and teach the Jewish people. It's not a simple idea and don't try it at home. And Avera Lashma is not something that we can take into our own hands. My only point, and we, again, we gave a shir on the Mekoshesh Eitzim in the past, you can look at it online. My only point in bringing it up is that the Mekoshesh Eitzim is not a simple parsha. And then finally, our parsha ends with the mitzvah of tzitzis, a mitzvah which is shkula kenege kol mitzvah shebetorah, such a great mitzvah. It stands opposite all mitzvahs in the Torah, within the, within the tzitzis, the, the gematria, the number of strings, and the knots, it adds up to 613. We think of Hashem. The medrash says, very powerful medrash, it says, person is drowning. They call out for help. So the lifeguard throws a rope and you say to them, hold on to the rope and you'll live. Let go of the rope and you'll float out to sea. You have no chance of living. And the Medrash says the same is true with the tzitzis, which are the means to Torah and mitzvahs. When you hold on to the rope of tzitzis, meaning when you remember about Torah and mitzvahs, you'll live. You have life. And if you let go of the rope, right? it's Eitzchayim Hila Machazikimba. It's the tree of life. It's the rope. You can hold on to the branch. You have life. But if you let go, you get washed away. Last Shabbos we spoke about the current of the stream, of the river, that will just, if you go with the flow, it will take you downstream to a place you no longer recognize yourself. 
and the willingness to swim upstream, to go against the tide, like the salmon who spawn at the end of their lives. We talked about the life cycle of the salmon, the willingness to swim upstream. You have to be able to swim upstream. It's Lamach Hazikim, but how do you have the courage to swim upstream? When you hold on to the tzitzis, the rope that, that allows you, and when you hold on to Torah and mitzvahs, are very beautiful. Another medrash says, tzitzis represent the logo, the insignia. You know, it's an amazing thing. We walk around, and we don't get paid to advertise the logo of the clothing that we wear, and yet we pay a premium to wear it. So people buy an expensive Nike hat or shirt. They buy expensive, uh, I don't even know the names of expensive clothing. I, um, I'm trying to remember the name. What's the name of that expensive? I got one tie that's so expensive that was given as a gift to me. What's it called? With an F. No. Who? Ferragamo. I got one. You buy the. You think Ferragamo is paying you to wear their belt? They're paying you to wear their shoes because you're advertising? No, we pay that premium to wear that logo. Why? Because when we identify with that logo, we identify with the emblem on the front of the car, or the logo on our belt, or the logo on our shirt, or our cap, or our golf club bag. We identify with that logo. We think somehow it makes us cool, it makes us in, it makes us have status. They don't pay us. They should be paying us to promote their logo. We are paying a premium to promote their logo. So the Medrash says, Tzitzis are the logo of the Ribono Shalom. It's the uniform that a, a uniformed officer, a person who has to wear a uniform to work, a person wears a uniform in order to identify with their mission, with their job, they make clear of the world, who I report to and what I'm here to do. Tzitzis are the uniform, the logo, the emblem of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's children. We have a boss. This reminds us of him. We report to him. We have a mission. We're here to accomplish it. What's the point of tzitzis? It's uriisim or so. We look at them. And why do we look at them? What does it help us do? Velosasuru. It helps us not. Losasuru. What does the word sasuru mean? Not to stray, not to follow our eyes. Is that word familiar? This is my own insight. I'm very proud of it. I think our parsha ends the very way it begins. Why were they sent to spy the land? What is it sent? They're sent, why? Viasuru es Eretz Kena'an. We have the very same word at the beginning of the parsha and the end of the parsha. They're sent viasuru, and then when it comes to tzitzis, it's to help us velosasuru. So what is that word? What does it mean? And why at the beginning are we supposed to use it? And here we're not supposed to use it. I spoke about this in the past. Also, it's online. I don't have time. I want to get into the psukim we want to look at. But I call that to your attention. It's not a coincidence. The parsha ends the way it begins with that same word. And I think because tzitzis is the antidote to what went wrong with the maraglam. I'll give you a little hint. Tzitzis requires to see beyond what you see with your eyes to live with a sense of vision. Tzitzis is about imagination. Why is there blue string in the tzitzis, the trelas? The contrast of the blue and white cause what? The trelas is doma liyam. Yam doma l'rakiyah. L'rakiyah doma l'kiseyakavod. You see the contrast of the blue and the white. You say, oh, that blue reminds me of the ocean, of the sea. Huh, the sea reminds me of the sky. Oh, the sky reminds me of kiseyakavod. Oh, oh yeah, there's a ribona shalom. So when you look down and you see the blue and white, you don't see the blue and white strings. What do you see? The Ribbon Shalom, when you use your imagination. And when the Jews went into Israel to investigate, they were not supposed to just see giants, fortified cities, a massive army. They were supposed to use their imagination to see beyond what the eye sees. For the Jew to be here today, we only exist because we've always lived with a sense of vision. If we would have seen the enemies we faced and what we confronted, we would have given up long ago. 
we would have had the same attitude of Ephes. The only reason we've survived and the only reason we're here is that capacity to use our imagination, to have vision for beyond what meets the eye. That's the message of Tzitzis, which is the antidote to the mistake of the Meraglam. So they were sent, Shlach Lecha Anashim V'yasuru Eretz Kanan. Go and use your imagination and vision when you see the land. See what could be. Dream of what could be. You know, that's the story of the Panovich Rav saw a hill and he saw the city of Bnei Brak. Rav Amital saw a hill in Gush Etzion, and he saw a vision of, of Yeshivat Har Etzion. It's a very similar story of the Panovich Rav and founding Bnei Brak, or of Amital Zatzah saw, and when he found Yeshivat Har Etzion. But these were men of great vision. Everyone else saw a sandstorm and a mountain and a barren land and said, it can't be. And they saw a thriving, bustling base medrash. And that was the mission. Don't just see giants. Don't just see the obstacles and the impediments. Use your imagination, just like at the end, Tzitzis is the Uriisimo. So we use our imagination when we see the Trelas Domalayam, Domalarakia, Domalakisayakavod, which is a reminder of Hashem himself. Okay, Perak Yudalad, Pasuk Yavalf. That's what we're going to study together. Perak Yudalad, Pasuk Yud Aleph. Why am I starting in the middle here? You'll notice it is a stuma. It is a section where we don't follow. The chapters were introduced later. We've said this countless times. The chapters of the Torah were introduced later by Christians. Why were they introduced later by Christians? Not for very good reasons. Because when they wanted to, when they had the, um, what are they called? The Ramban and the disputations. When they had the disputations and they wanted to disprove to us the authenticity of the Torah, they wanted to reference chapter and verse. And it was inconvenient the way we had it laid out, so they had to introduce chapters in order to be able to use the chapters for the disputations. In fact, the Rabbi Soloveitchik, the Rav, didn't like to invoke the word perek to suggest that it came from a Mesorah. He would call it a capital, in capital this, in order to reflect that this isn't our authoritative, authentic delineation of how to reference our psukim, so, and so on. My, my great uncle, Oliver Shalom, wrote a book about this, but I don't know if it ever came out. Did Uncle Mesh's book on the Torah and why it was written that way? I don't know if it ever came out. But it's a fascinating area to study. So if you look here on page 804 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, you see that a break where a paragraph ends and a new paragraph begins. When you get an aliyah of the Torah, if you look in a Torah scroll, you'll see that we don't have chapter breaks. It doesn't say Perakid Aleph, Perakid Beis, Perakid Gimel. How do you know? You have a break between Parshios and the Torah. And then within Parshios, you have sometimes a break and it continues on the same line, and sometimes a break where it only begins with a new paragraph. What are called psuchos and stumos. Why do we have those? So Chazal tell us because Moshe Rabbeinu, when he was taking dictation from the Ribbon Shalom, when God was dictating the Torah, Moshe said, You know what? Give me a minute. I need to think about what you just told me. I need to absorb it. Give me a minute. These pauses were the margin when Moshe was absorbing the margin in this conversation where he was absorbing what Hashem had just told him, sometimes a longer break, which is a stuma, where it begins in the next paragraph, and sometimes a shorter break, I'm sorry, a pchusa, where it's open, and sometimes where it continues on the same line. So here you see a break, and therefore all of that was just to justify why we're starting right here. So Perak Yudalad Pasuk Gedalaf, page 804, and you'll see why... Kodesh Baruch Hu or Moshe added the break here. This is a natural section break. And by the way, that's why we learn by the section breaks in the Torah, not by the um, counterfeit breaks that were introduced later 
and from outside of our tradition. So what's the break here? This is right after the national hysteria. The people, the spies come back, they report negatively. Again, according to the Ramban, their entire negativity was captured in that one word, FS, and the people react hysterically. They have hysteria. What do you mean? What do you mean we can't go in the land? What do you mean we're going to be slaughtered? What do you mean we can't make it? What do you mean? We came out of Egypt for this? And God looks down at this people and He says, Are you kidding me? After, are you kidding me? After everything I've done. After everything I've done. Like, are you kidding me? You know, one of my children, no matter what we propose to do as a fun thing, they don't want to go. And each time we force them to go, each time they had the best time of their life. So the next thing comes up and they say, I don't want to go. We say, hasn't it every single time? It's been fun. When are you going to trust us? We, you think we don't want you to have fun? It will be Hashem says, I've bailed you out every situation. I've had your back. I've turned the rules of nature upside down. I've intervened in the world. Enough. What do you mean? You don't trust me. You're back in your tents. Everybody's crying all night. You're worried about what will be? Really? Really? So he says, I gave you a Bechia Shachina. I'm going to give you a Bechia Shadoros. You cried for nothing. I'll give you a reason to cry. And he gave us Tisha B'Av. And the reason to cry is not because you can't eat or drink for 24 hours. The reason to cry is because throughout our history on Tisha B'Av, it's been the most inauspicious day on our calendar, designated as such. The Rav has a whole insight. Rav Shechter writes it up in Bikvei Atzon. Not for now, but why don't you say Miktas Hayom Kekulo on Tisha B'Av? When it comes to the laws of mourning, we say part of the day is like the whole day. So mourners get up on the seventh day after the morning. You sit for a little bit, davening, or you sit for a moment or two, the day is over. Miktas Hayom, part of the day, Kekulo is like the whole day. Shloshim, on the 30th day, Miktas Hayom Kekulo. You don't apply Miktas Hayom Kekulo to the end of the year. You only apply it to the day and the month, not to the year. For separate reasons, separate lambdas. So the Rav asks, why don't you apply Miksasa Yom Kekulo to Tisha B'av? Can you imagine? We'd all love that. If Tisha B'av is designated as a day of mourning, say, Kina, wake up, one Kina, a little bit, no, by nine o'clock, you're back to eating and drinking. Why don't we say Miksasa Yom Kekulo on Tisha B'av? And the Rav answered, because Tisha B'av is designated the entire day as an inauspicious day on our calendar. You, don't, you only apply Miksasa Yom Kekulo to to periods which are superimposed onto the calendar. So morning is not part of the calendar. You don't put in your Outlook calendar, your Google calendar, you schedule 10 years from now, in Sivan you'll be morning from this day to that day. Morning is not part of the calendar. It's superimposed on the calendar as a reaction to a sense of loss. So you apply Niktasayom Kekulo, part of the day is like the whole day, to something which is not intrinsic to the calendar, but is imposed onto the calendar. Ah, what about Tisha B'Av? He says, Tisha B'Av is not like ordinary morning. Tisha B'Av is a day in the calendar. It's intrinsic to the calendar. The calendar day has been designated as an inauspicious day, as a fulfillment of the promise of this medrash, that God says, you cried a Bechia Shachinam, you cried for no reason, I'll give you a reason to cry, I'll give you a Bechia Lodoros, and Kachava, that is exactly what has happened. We have been crying ever, we've been crying ever since. So the people react hysterically, and God says, they're an incorrigible people. I've had it. I just can't do this. He gets ready to wipe us out. He gets ready to wipe us out. But, uh, sorry. I was going to read to you this insight of the Rav. Let me read to you this insight of the Rav. On the verse, Alona Alavi Arshenu Asaki Yachol Nuchal La. Right? Right when, when they give their report, they say, Amalek lives there and so on. So 
Kalev says, No, we can do it. We can do it. Kalev tries to protest them and say, What do you mean you're so negative? So says the Rav. Chazal says that three grants have been bestowed upon Israel. Torah, the land of Israel, the world to come. But the Jew had to acquire them through effort, through suffering. God rewards a person in accordance with his effort. A person appreciates something in proportion to the level of hardship he had to undergo to achieve it. To create the eternal bond between spiritual values and the Jew, he had to work for it, to experience pain for it. Holiness has one source, sacrifice. Holiness and sacrifice, both literally and figuratively, are fundamentally the same concept. Holiness can only be created through self-sacrifice, pain, effort, and exertion. If a person does not anticipate and struggle, holiness cannot come into being. So the Rav says, this is so critical to our generation, right? We talk spirituality, holiness. It comes, the Rav has a famous footnote, footnote four in Halachic Man, where he talks about religion requires submission. It requires sacrifice. It requires effort. Spirituality is not... Yes, you can achieve spirituality with a kumzitz and a magnificent sunset in the Grand Canyon and a meditation. They all contribute to a sense of spirituality. But the most genuine, everlasting spirituality comes as a result of endurance, a willingness to sacrifice, submission. And that's what he says is true here. He, he doesn't write it here, but he says elsewhere thereof. That's why we all know where Har Hamoriah is, and we now go to Har Sinai. Har Sinai, where the Torah was given, we don't know where it is, we don't go visit, it has no holiness. The moment that Matan Torah was over, it went back to being a pile of stones and dirt and rubble. Whereas Har HaMoriah, the Temple Mount, is the most holy spot in the Jewish people. It's revered, we pray for it, we return to it, we long for it, it retains its Kedusha. That's why the whole controversy, can you go on the Temple Mount today? Why the difference? One would have thought Matan Torah, the place our Sinai, should retain its holiness and said the Rav. Holiness is the result of sacrifice and effort. Har Sinai was top down. God gave us the Torah. We didn't do anything. Har Hamoriah is the place where Avram was willing to sacrifice Yitzchak, where Yaakov had the dream, where we bring korbanos, we make sacrifices. Holiness is the result of sacrifice. It's active, not passive. Holiness is the result of bottom up, not top down. Holiness has one source. And here he continues, that's why I'm sharing it with you. That the existence of the state of Israel is a miracle is beyond doubt. At the same time, it is a miracle that came at great cost. At Israel's very inception on the first night of the state of Israel's existence, bombs were dropped on Tel Aviv. Subsequently, in the years since it has come into being, the relationship of world Jewry to the state of Israel has been like the relationship of a mother to her only child, saturated with trembling fear and insecurity. Insecurity because one is never sure if a passenger bus will be attacked, one is never certain if a small fishing vessel in the Gulf of Aqaba will not be fired upon. A mother whose son is stationed only a few miles from her home is never sure if he will not become the next victim of Arab snipers. Why is the suffering that has accompanied the entire history of Israel necessary? Because the state of Israel involves holiness. And holiness only exists if man through sacrifice becomes a partner with God. The paradigm of this partnership is the mitzvah of bris, to which the prophet refers, through your blood shall you live. The blood and the suffering allow us to merit the continued existence of Medinas Yisrael. We experience this on, he writes Medinas, Medinat Yisrael. We experience this on certain period in our history because our very insecurity is a sign that Hashem indeed desires the state of Israel. If he did not, the birth and the subsequent building of the state would have proceeded smoothly. Jewish history is on a zigzag trajectory. 
Avram was repeatedly promised a child by God and yet had to wait many long years for Yitzchak's birth, ultimately to be commanded to sacrifice him. Moshe had to wait atop a cold mountain for 40 days until God finally revealed himself with the message of Israel's forgiveness. The suffering, the worry, the uncertainty is precisely what God desires of us. So it's difficult. I don't want to suggest that's easy. Why couldn't God have created a world where you can attain holiness without sacrifice? Why must one suffer? And that's not really our tradition. The suffering servant, Isaiah 53, is another religion. That's not ours. So why is this notion of suffering? So it's not that suffering, it's that the result of the effort, of the endurance, of the willingness to sacrifice is what creates that bond which could never be achieved without it. I remember in my year in Israel, in Karim Biavna, the whole yeshiva went on this tiyul near Eilat. We took this incredibly grueling tiyul, I guess what we thought at the time, was an incredibly long and treacherous and, and uh, hot tiyul. And we ended up on top of this mountain with the most magnificent, magnificent view. Magnificent view. And I still remember the mashkiach of Rivlin saying to us, you know, had we taken you on a helicopter and dropped you in this spot, eh, the view would have meant nothing. But because of what it took for you to get to this spot, that's why it feels like everything. And it was a metaphor for religious growth. And it's what the Rav is saying right here, is that it's with the sacrifice, the submission, the endurance, that one achieves that sense of holiness, is true for Eretz Yisrael. And that's what Kalev was telling the Maraglam. Ephes, there's giants! It's going to be hard! It will come with sacrifice! It may come with losses! Says Kalev, exactly. But that's what holiness is about. That's not a reason to shy away. That's not a reason to hesitate. That is how we will achieve, that is the path forward towards holiness. The people cried that entire night, as we said. And uh, I'll read to you what the Rav says about this, that Tisha B'Av was established as this day of, of loss and of crying. The state of Israel tried to establish a new fast day for those who were killed by the Nazis, but they did not succeed. They did succeed, but the Rav at the time thought they didn't. I once told Ben-Gurion, not a fast day, that's why, they succeeded with Yom HaShoah, but they were unsuccessful to establish a fast day. Said the Rav, I once told Ben-Gurion that there had been many occasions to establish a fast for the Crusades, but those in positions of authority chose not to. Tisha B'av should be utilized as the day of mourning, not only for the Churban Beis Amikdash, but for all Jewish tragedies. The Rav, Rabbi J.J. Schachter, has written a long scholarly article on this. The Rav, maybe counterintuitively, was very opposed to Yom HaShoah. When Yom HaShoah was established, Yom HaShoah Bahagvura, on the day to commemorate the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and it took several years after the founding of the state for Yom HaShoah to be established, the Rav was very opposed because he felt all of Jewish suffering and tragedy is subsumed under Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av is the Bechiyel Adoros. That is the day designated. We sit in Kinos, we talk about the burning of the Sifrei Torah and the Crusades and the Inquisition. We talk about expulsions and pogroms and we talk about the Holocaust. And the Rav felt it was wrong for Yom HaShoah to be designated as a, as a separate day. He opposed it. Certainly he would say that once it was established, we should honor it and the survivors who observe it. But fundamentally, when it was being debated, the Rav opposed it because of our Parsha, because of this notion of the Bechia. But now I want to get to our section. Okay? That was all by way of introduction. But I really want to get to our section because this is fascinating. Perak Yedalit Pasuk Yedal. Let's read all these verses, then we'll go back and analyze them. God says to Moshe, How long will these people provoke me? How much longer will they not believe in me after all the signs and the miracles I've given them? Or, put differently, Are you kidding me? 
Really? Are you kidding? Akenu badever vaurishanu. You know what? It's, it's fascinating. God is asking Moshe for permission. Unbelievable. That's why I love this section. Hashem is saying to Moshe, let, just let me at him. Let me at him. Like Moshe is holding Hashem back. Hashem is like, just let me at him. Let me at him. Akenu badever. Let me wipe him out. I can destroy them. We'll rebuild. We'll start again. Me and you. We can do it. Moshe, you're the only one who gets it. What is the matter with these people? Are you kidding me? Ten plagues, splitting of the sea, mun from heaven, slav, water. Are you kidding me? When I say come into the land and we're going to realize my whole purpose of your existence and their answer is we're afraid, we don't trust you, it could go wrong. Shem says, are you kidding me? Moshe, you and me, let's start again. And what does Moshe answer? I might have been like, you know what? And last week's parasha, Moshe was erase me from the book. I'm done. Count me out. I'm out of here. Now God is taking him up on the offer. Let me destroy him and it'll be you and me. And if I'm Moshe, I say, done. Just do me a favor, be gentle. Take him out gently. But you and me, we'll start again. You and I. But that's not what Moshe says. What does Moshe say? Vayomer Moshe Hashem Mitzrayim ki God, w- w- one second, one second. You want to wipe them out now? We've gotten this far? After everything you've done, what you showed and taught the world, and now you want to eliminate them? What will Egypt say? Egypt will say, here you turn their lives upside down in order to liberate this people. What are they going to say? The inhabitants of the land who have heard you. Those who are in Canaan will say, God who is in this people who have appeared to them eye to eye. This people who saw God, you spoke to them at the mountain. You revealed yourself to them. They saw eye to eye, face to face. You've been protecting them with the cloud, with the fire. So in Egypt, where you came from, what are they going to say? Israel, where you're supposed to go to, Canaan? What are they going to say? You know what the nations of the world are going to say? God couldn't do it. God ran into a wall. God couldn't fulfill His promise. So He killed them in the desert because God couldn't take on the giants in the land. God couldn't get it to the finish line. So... The whole section is unbelievable. The Rebbe Shalom is asking Moshe permission. New Moshe, what do you think? I'm considering wiping out the people starting again with you. What do you think? And Moshe's response is, God, let me offer you an angle you haven't thought of. Let me tell you an implication or consequence you haven't considered. There's an unintended consequence, Hashem, that you're not thinking about. Yeah, they do. the people deserve to be wiped out? Absolutely. I'm as frustrated with them as you are. But... What are they going to say? Egypt, Canaan, Goyim, the nations of the world, what's everyone going to say? So instead, Moshe continues, Instead, let, the strength, let your strength be increased, as you taught me to say to you. Where did we see those words originally? Parshas, Kisisa. After the sin of the golden calf, God tells Moshe, I want to wipe them out. I've had it. I'm destroying them. But listen, there's this formula that if you say, I, you can't help but appease me. 
I can't help but forgive you. And Moshe now invokes that formula. Now interestingly, does he invoke the entire formula? How many elements are there to the formula? 13, the Yid Gimel Midos. Does Moshe invoke all 13? No. Why does he leave some out? I see we're not going to have time to get to it. But look at the Ramban. The Ramban goes through exactly which ones he left out and why he left those out. But Moshe taps into that formula that Hashem had already given him. Forgive the iniquity of this nation according to your kindness. As you've borne these people from Egypt until now. And Hashem says, you know what? So Moshe gives this argument. God says, I'm considering wiping out the people. What do you think? We start again, me and you. Moshe says, mm, unintended consequence. Nations of the world are going to say, you couldn't do it, you couldn't get the job done. So instead, God, let me remind you, you're slow to anger, you're kind, you're forgiving, you're good, you're amazing, I love you, you know, you look so handsome in that, you're perfect, everything, everything Moshe could think of. And Hashem says, you know what? Salach kidvarecha. You know what? You're right, Moshe. We're good to go. Kidvarecha. Your argument? You're right. I didn't think... You're right. I hadn't considered that angle. I hadn't considered that consequence. You're right. I forgive them. But then Hashem says, but there is a consequence to 40 years of wandering, a year for a day, as we spoke about earlier. What in the world is going on here? First of all, I want to remind you that in Parshish Kisisa, we quoted the beautiful Maharal on the Gemara and Rosh Hashanah. The Gemara and Rosh Hashanah that it said... Imru, I didn't see Imru. Yasilafanai, when Hashem tells Moshe, here's the formula. Do it in front of me, and I can't help but forgive you. The Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, which quotes the, that conversation, that Mis'atif HaKadosh Baruch Hu Hashem put on a talus, and he taught Moshe Rabbeinu Slichos, Hashem Hashem Kerachim V'chanun. It doesn't say Imru Lafanai points out the Maharal, it says Yasu Lafanai. The formula works not when we just recite it. The formula works when it reminds us to live it. God, you have these midos, and we need to emulate your way. And that's when it works. Remember Parshas Kisisa, we spoke about it, and I told you that great story about the Rebbe, who was late for Slichos, because he was helping the woman with the fire, with the wood. He was saying Slichos while he was putting the wood in the fireplace. And the Misnagid came back and he said, you're right, your Rebbe does go up to heaven and higher. You don't remember that story? Such a good story. All right, anyway, it's a good story. So the, uh, the parsha is Moshe's now invoking. We see the second time already, uh, he remembers the formula. Oh, if my argument's not good enough, that God, it's not good for business. It's not good for your business if you wipe out the people. If that argument doesn't work, oh, don't forget the formula. But the formula is not just saying it. One has to, one has to live the formula. What's going on over here? So first of all, I want to point out to you an amazing insight that this is not just... Oh, I have so much to say here. I wanted to really go through these psukim and talk about it and, and get through what this was. Everyone have another hour? Yeah. I'm just joking. Rabbi Moskowitz has his wonderful class. I would never uh, violate his class. So we'll end with this. Even though we managed didn't get into one parish I wanted to get into. Okay, sorry, what could you do? So Rashi, when it says, when Hashem says, Salach kidvarecha, You know why this is so worth learning? Because, believe it or not, in a very short time from now, too short a time from now, we are going to be saying this over and over and over again. Elul, Slichos, Aserosimechuva, Yom Kippur. How many times are we going to find ourselves saying these words? It's important to know what they mean, to tap into them. So listen to this great insight. Rashi says, 
I'll tell you one parish. God says, I buy it. That's a good argument. You know what? I'm going to go with you. I forgive them. What's Kidvarecha? Which part of Moshe's argument? The fact that Moshe invoked the formula? Look at Rashi. No. The part of Moshe's argument where he says, God, it's bad for your business. Why is it bad for God's business? Rabbi Menachem Liebteg was here a couple weekends ago and gave a brilliant shear about Yerushalayim. And he shows what Yerushalayim's name is never mentioned in Chumash. Mentioned many names in Tanakh, many times in Tanakh, not in Chumash. It's only identified as Makom Asher Yivchar Hashem, the Shakain Shemo Sham. And Rabbi Liebteg, in his hour, which I'll tell you in 10 seconds, traced from Avram Avinu until we get to Yerushalayim, David Amelech, and Shlomo, God's entire mission for us is to promote his name. Shem Hashem. Kiddush Hashem, Chil Hashem, Neshakein Shemo Sham. Right? Everything about the conversations with the Avos and Hashem are, how can I best promote your name? What does promoting Hashem's name mean? His mission for the world, His reputation, godliness. That's our whole mission as a people. And Yerushalayim is the capital in which we can fulfill that purpose, that mission. And that's why David Amalek couldn't do it. Not because he was a warrior, because he fought, he had blood on his hands, but Rabbi Litek said, because since he was still fighting, if you have enemies, the brand is not really recognized and appreciated, so you can't, you can't build the base on Mikdash. It's only Shlomo, who in his name, Shalom, is in the name Shlomo, David is telling his son, you will have peace with your neighbors, they will appreciate you, you're ready to establish the capital with the base on Mikdash, L'shakein Shemosham, because the entire mission and purpose of the Jewish people is to promote God's name. And that's what Moshe here, Rabbi Liebteg didn't mention this, but that's what Moshe is quoting Rabbi Menachem Liebteg, Shir to Hashem. And he's saying... The whole reason you tapped Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, the whole reason you took us out of Mitzrayim is to promote your name. What are they going to say about your name if you wipe them out? It's bad for business. You're undermining the whole purpose of why we're here. You can't do it. And when it says, Salach Kidvarecha, says Rashi, that's the argument that Moshe accepted. That's the argument that Moshe bought. How did Rashi know that? How did Rashi know that Kidvarecha was referring to that argument and was not referring to the formula and so on. So the Chabina Rav, answered because Rashi had a tradition that whenever one davens not for themselves, but they daven for Kvod Shamayim, for the honor of Hashem, it has to be answered. Rashi was familiar with this tradition. And the Chabina Rav added, Mitzvah Lafarsim is a mitzvah to promote the idea that when you say to Hashem, help me have good health. Help me have finances. It's not so that I have good health to play mahjong or golf. Help me have good health because I want to make a Kiddush Hashem. I want to be Marbek Fod Shamayim. Help me have money because I want to make a difference in your world. That's why. Mitzvah Lafarsing. Now the truth is, we all do it every day. Three times a day, and this is going to change your Shemona Esrei forever. And with this I end. I'm sorry, Rabbi Moskowitz. Just so leave back there. With this I end. How do we end Shemona Esrei every day? Hashem, that whole litany and list of things I just asked you for, all the things I asked you for, and the personal pleas I interspersed within, you know why I'm asking for it? Do it for your namesake, do it for your right arm, do it for your Torah, do it for your holiness. What we're saying is, don't do it for me. Do it so I can be an instrument and a vehicle for you. 
That's why. So incorporated into our Shemona Esrei three times a day is the same argument Moshe is making here. Hashem, it's bad for business. Hashem, it's bad for your business if I'm sick in bed, if I have no money, if I can't do mitzvahs. It's bad for business. My whole life is to be marbek kvot shemaim, is to make a kiddush Hashem. Position me and enable me to be able to do it. That is the way we end Shemona Esrei. That all the things I just asked for help me do it really for you. And the same way that Hashem accepted that argument of Moshe, Mirz Hashem will accept the argument from us as well. Have a great day. I apologize to Rabbi Moskowitz for running over.